0: This evening, and my goal tonight is that you would leave here making one decision. Just one decision tonight. And this is the decision that you would choose to do the right thing no matter what. That you would choose tonight that you would do the right thing no matter what. Now, most people don't have a problem with the first part of that statement, that you would do the right thing. In fact, I think most people would agree with that, you ought to do the right thing. Even unbelievers would think, well, you, you should probably, in whatever, whatever situation you find yourself in, whatever predicament you find yourself in, you should do the right thing. It's, it's not the first half of the statement that we uh, find is so difficult. It's the back half of the statement that we would do the right thing no matter what, no matter what it may cost us, no no matter what it may uh, bring our way, no matter how much trouble it may land us in, no matter how many difficult conversations are on the other side of it, but that we would choose to do the right thing no matter what. There is a very famous photograph, perhaps you've seen it, it's taken between the years of 1936 to 1938. It shows hundreds of young men who appear to be dock workers of some sort, maybe, maybe day laborers perhaps. I think we have the photo, but they're, they're all giving the Heil Hitler salute. Hundreds of thousands of men lined the road as Hitler made his way down, and they're all giving Hitler the salute, except one man. He circled in the photograph, you, you see him stand out there, and one man defiantly folding his arms, refusing, and no matter what anyone else is doing around him, refusing to salute Adolf Hitler. Years later, a woman came forward and identified that man and said that that man in the photograph was in fact her father. The man is thought to be named August Landmesser. He was sentenced to a labor camp because it was discovered that he was in fact engaged to a lady by the name of Irma Eckler. Who herself was a Protestant by religion, but a Jew by nationality, and since it was forbidden, it was illegal at that time in Germany to be engaged to someone of, uh, of Jewish descent, he was sentenced to a labor camp. Eckler, the woman that he was engaged to, Died in a concentration camp some years later. Landmesser, the man in the photograph, who is so defiantly folding his arms, would be drafted into forced military service where he would die in battle. Would you do the right thing no matter what? You ever feel like the man in the photograph... Do you ever feel like everyone around you is saluting something that you know to be totally wrong and and against God and just not right? The world that we live in, the, the times are evil and the days are crazy. And it feels like every day you wake up to hear something else spiraling out of control. And now more than ever, God's people must choose to do the right thing, no matter what. So what is your plan to ensure that you do that? That's what I want to talk about tonight. Do you have a plan? Do you have a plan to ensure that no matter what everyone else around you may be doing, you're going to do the right thing? If you're married, have you talked to your husband or your wife about that plan? If you have children, have you talked to your children about that plan? Maybe have you talked to your parents or your siblings about the plan to ensure that you do the right thing no matter what? Certainly you have a plan. As Christians, it is Uh, imperative for us to ensure that we have a plan that leads us down the path of righteousness and good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. You, You have to have a plan. You have to be able in the Christian life to do two things. You have to be able to play offense, and you have to be able to play defense, The Bible says in Colossians chapter 2 that you make sure that you are not taken captive by any ungodly philosophy or ideology. In other words, Paul tells the church at Colossians, play defense because you have an enemy who is playing offense against you. The enemy, the Bible teaches us, is the world, the flesh, and the devil. And these three have set themselves against us, and they've drawn up a plan, and what Paul tells the church at Colossians is, the whole plan is to drag us into captivity. So see that you are not taken captive. Play defense, but it's not enough to play defense. Paul also says to the church at Corinth, you must also play offense. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that you and I should take captive every thought. So, did you hear that? He tells the church at Colossian, or Colossae, see that you're not taken captive, but then he tells the church at Corinth, and take captive. In other words, be on the offense. You must be on the defense, and you must be on the offense. That we should take captive every thought and make it subject, he goes on to say, to the cross of Jesus Christ. So what's your plan? How How are you going to ensure that you will do the right thing no matter what? How are you going to ensure that your family will do the right thing no matter what? How will you play offense and how will you play defense so that you are not blown about with every wind of doctrine like so many are. Well, in Mark chapter 6, we're told the story of two men. One man refuses to do the right thing, no matter what. And another man, he does the right thing, no matter what it may cost him. Two men in the text, one is a man by the name of John the Baptist, and the other is a man by the name of Herod. John in the text is thriving and surviving. He has a plan. He does the right thing, no matter what it may cost him. Herod in the text is a man who is taken captive. The story picks up in Mark 6 and verse number 14. And King Herod heard of him, the him there is Jesus, so King Herod heard of Jesus for his name was spread abroad and he said, Herod said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead and therefore mighty works do show themselves in him. Others said that it is Elias which is Elijah and and others said that it is a prophet or as one of the prophets. Verse 17 reads, and Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold on John. So so watch, here's what's happening here. verse 14 and verse 15 are playing out in real time in the book of Mark but then verse 16 all the way to verse 30 is it's going back and telling the story. So here's Jesus going around all the region doing all of these miracles and wonders and signs. He has all this wonderful teaching and crowds are flocking to him and Jesus has sent out the disciples. The disciples have performed miracles. The disciples have taught about the coming of the Messiah and every Everybody hears about it, including Herod. And when Herod hears it, he says, that must be John the Baptist back from the dead. Now, the only way you know that is because of what the verse says, verse 17, for Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold on John, and he put him in prison. So if you were watching this by way of a movie, in between verse 15 and verse 16, there would be this, this intermission. It would go five years earlier. So here's what's happening. Herod hears about John, that's Je- that, or Herod hears about Jesus and says, that's John back from the dead. And then he goes back and he retells the story. And here's how it goes. Verse 17, Herod had sent forth, laid hold on John, bound him in prison for Herodias' sake his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. And John had said unto Herod, it is not lawful for thee to marry thy brother's wife. And therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him. and She would have killed him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, and knowing that he was a just man and holy, and observed him, and and he heard him, and did many things, and heard him gladly. And when a convenient day was come, That Herod on his birthday made a supper to his lords and his high captains and chief of estates of Galilee. Then when the daughter of the said Herodias came in and danced and pleased Herod and them that sat with him. And the king said unto the damsel, ask of me whatsoever thou wilt and I will give it thee. And he sware unto her, whatsoever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it thee unto half of my kingdom. And she went forth and she said unto her mother, what shall I ask? And she, the, her mother Herodias, says, "The head of John the Baptist." And she, which is Salome, the daughter, the damsel, and Salome came in straightway with haste unto the king and asked, saying, "I will that thou give me by and by in a charge, or in a charger, the head of John the Baptist." Look at verse twenty-six. And the king was exceeding sorry. Look here, he knew what the right thing to do was, but he didn't do it. The king was exceeding sorry, and yet for his oath's sake, and for theirs' sake which sat with him, he would not reject her. And immediately Herod sent an executioner and commanded John's head, be brought, and he, the executioner, went and beheaded him, John, in prison. He brought John's head in a charger and gave it to the damsel. And the damsel gave it to her mother. Would you do the right thing no matter what? I have three ideas from the text, by way of contrast of these two men, three things that we should plan that we will do in order to do the right thing. Let's bow together for prayer, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd use your word in our lives. Father, hide me behind your word. Fill me with your spirit. Set a watch before my lips and keep the doors of my mouth. And may I not say anything apart from the leading of your spirit and in line with your word. Father, and I pray that you would use your word to strengthen your people today. Shape us, mold us, make us into your image And may we be willing to do the right thing, no matter what. And in Jesus' name we pray. And all the church said together, amen. I know in the text it doesn't look like it, but John is the one who's thriving and surviving. Herod is the one being taken captive and losing. So how can we be like John and not Herod? How can we ensure that we do the right thing no matter what? Three things. Number one. First, you must commit to live for the glory of God. You must commit to live for the glory of God. Herod contrasted with John. Herod lives for his own glory. Herod lives for his own wants. He does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. All Herod cared about was what he wanted. Herod lives a life of self-glorification. Herod lived for the glorification of self. If he he wanted to do something, he did it. And if he didn't want to do something, then he didn't. This is the way that most people live. And most people go through their days doing what they want, when they want, however they want, with whoever they choose to do. And no one can tell them otherwise. It's an exercise in self-glorification. It's seen most clearly when Herod in verse 18 or in verse 17 sins and takes Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. So Herod married Herodias, and the problem with that is Herodias is Herod's sister-in-law. If that's not messed up enough, the Bible teaches us in the book of John that Herodias is also Herod's niece. So he marries his sister-in-law and niece. That's some crazy West Virginia stuff right there. (laughs) And not only is it crazy and sick, but it's a sin. And John calls him out on it. John says, this is not lawful for thee. You are violating the word of God. And Herod, who only cares about his own glory, sins and arrests John. Herod, whose whole goal in life was to just live for himself, sins and arrests John. Herod lives for his own glory. He saw life as an exercise in self-glorification. If he wanted it, he did it. If he liked it, he did it. John, however, in contrast, John lived for the glory of God. Herod lives for the glorification of self, but John lives for the glorification of God. Let let me show you what I mean. Over and over in John's account in the Gospels, and there's not a lot of space in the Gospels given to John, but, but there's several, and most of them at the beginning of the Gospels. But over and over, you'll see John saying, I'm a voice crying in the wilderness I'm a finger pointing. I'm simply a light shining. In, In modern day vernacular, John understood that Jesus was the groom and he was the best man. And as the best man, his whole goal in life was to ensure that everybody's eyes were looking at the groom. On one occasion John is baptizing people in the river and on the other side of the valley Jesus comes and while John is baptizing people in the river he points to Jesus and he says behold or "Or look or pay close attention, behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. John lived for the glorification of God. John lived for the glory of God. John would go on to say, he, speaking of Jesus, he must increase. I must decrease. You should think a whole lot about him, and you should think very little of me. That's what he says. John lived for the glory of God. I wonder what you and I live for. I wonder if we see our lives as an exercise in self glorification, or if we live our lives as an example of the glorification of God. Uh, Paul writing about the same idea when he writes to the churches. Paul says that whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever you do, do all, do all to the glory of God. I wonder if everything that I did today was it to the glory of God. I wonder if everything that you did today, was it to and for the glory of God? Was your, was, your, was your mentality, was your motivation, was your attention? Hey, let, let's make sure Jesus looks good. Let's make sure everybody thinks of Jesus and not think of me. You say, well, Dave, why, why, should we, why should we make such a big deal about Jesus? And the answer is simple, because Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and Jesus rose from the grave and Jesus is seated, the Bible says, tonight at the right hand of the throne of God, forever making intercession for us. You know what that means? That means Jesus and God are having a conversation right now and they're talking about you. So we ought to live for the glorification of God. That Christ alone has shed his blood to atone for our sin. There's no king. There's no governor. There's no president. There's no prime minister. There's no pastor who has died on the cross for your sin. That alone belongs to Jesus Christ. We should live for the glorification of God ultimately because of that. We should live for the glorification of God because Christ alone has the rights to the universe. And because Christ alone has the rights to the church. Herod lives a life of exercising self-glorification. John lives a life as an example of what it means to glorify God. You should be aware, friend, of the collision in your heart between the kingdom of self and the kingdom of God. This is where that battle is fought. That battle is fought on the turf of your heart. Will you live for you or will you live for him? Every morning that you and I wake up, we ought to ask ourselves, how can I glorify God today? In the middle of your day, you ought to stop and think, am I living for God today? And at the end of your day, as you reflect on all that was accomplished, can you say it was all accomplished for the glory The beauty, the excellency of our Lord Jesus Christ. Want to thrive and survive as a Christian in 2021? You better make this decision. You better live for the glory of God. Number two, want to thrive and survive? Want to do the right thing no matter what? You better live tough minded. You better live. Tough-minded. It's it's tucked away in the verse. We we almost read right over the top of it. But it's verse number seventeen. For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold on John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake. You see the you see the phrase bound him in prison. See that phrase? Now the reason that that phrase does not immediately jump out of the text to you is probably because you've never been bound up and thrown into a prison. But if you've ever been bound up and thrown into prison, that's the first thing you recognize when you read that text. Don't believe that there's enough talk about this in the Christian church today. It's kind of assumed in church today that if we follow God long enough, if we navigate the difficulty and the troubles and the brokenness of this life, if if we just tuck our sin away and we keep our sin very polite, then somehow in the end we'll get to where we really want to be. It's a Winnie the Pooh version of the Christian life. The Christian life is not Winnie the Pooh. And if you're going to grow in your sanctification, if you're going to live for the cause of Christ, if you're going to live for the glory of God, you must commit to be tough minded. This is John. John is a man who is tough minded. Secure people, tough-minded people live with this. They live with integrity. John is tough-minded. It's seen in several ways. But John's tough-mindedness is best seen in understanding John as a man of integrity, a man who looks the most powerful man in his life, Herod, right in the face and says, what you are doing is unlawful. It's, it's John's preaching that gets John in trouble. It's not John's personality. You can't use that as your excuse. You can't say, well, Dave, I'm just not wired like that. I'm, I'm not one of those confrontational people. How many of you know someone who's very confrontational by nature? Let's see. They, they, they can argue over anything, right? They can argue on the fastest way home. They'll argue over. And they got 18 reasons why turning left is faster than turning right. How many of you know somebody like that? Let me see. How many of you are sitting next to them? Point at them, All right, Just get it out in church. Confess your faults one to another, the Bible says. You say, I'm just not wired like that. I'm not a confrontational person. But I would tell you this, it's not John's personality that he stands on. Sure, John has a very eccentric personality. John, the Bible teaches us is an unusual man. He dresses in unusual clothes. He, he preaches in an unusual place. J- John was definitely an eccentric personality. Crowds went out to hear John, and they went to hear John gladly. And, and in fact, one time, this whole crowd of religious leaders, come to hear John. And as soon as John sees them sit down for the preaching service, John says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? How's that for a welcome to church sermon? John starts off his sermon by saying, you're a bunch of snakes. Who told you to come listen to me? It's true John has an eccentric personality, but John isn't standing on his personality. John is standing on the integrity of God's word. John's tough mindedness is rooted in his integrity in the Word of God. Herod, however, is not tough minded. The Bible tells us that Herod has a birthday party in verse number 21. He he throws himself his own birthday party. Isn't that nice of him? And who does he invite? He invites all the rich people in town over to his own birthday party. And quite the group comes, verse 21 says, all the lords, all all the leaders of the estates, all the important people in town. Watch here. You should make a note of this. Insecure people need all the attention. Secure people are people of integrity. Willing to stand for what's right because it's right. Insecure people, they don't stand on anything except is everyone looking at me? Is everyone paying attention to me? Is everyone liking me? Is everyone, is everyone clicking on my page, thumb, giving me the thumbs up or, or giving me the follow? Is everyone liking me if I say this, if I do this, if I post this? This is essentially Herod. He isn't tough-minded. Herod's weak-minded. So what do you get a person who has Everything. Herodias sends her daughter. She's referred to in the text as the damsel. John tells us her name is Salome. She goes in and she dances for Herod and for all the men there. Verse 22, and when the daughter of the said Herodias came in and danced, pleased Herod, and them that sat with him, the king says to the damsel, ask of me whatsoever thou wilt and I will give it thee. You can understand the brevity of verse number 22 as covering the multitude of sin. Herod is so pleased, he agrees to give Salome whatever she asks for. She goes to her mom, asks her mom, what should I, what should I take? Without hesitation, Herodias says John's head. Why does she say this? Well, the Bible teaches us that Herodias held a grudge against John in verse number 19. That Herodias would have beheaded John long before, but Herod stopped her. Herod protected John. Herod knew John to be a good man. Herod knew John to be just and holy. Herod, catch it, Herod knows John is a good man. But he doesn't treat him like a good man, he treats him like a prisoner. Herod knows the right thing to do, he just doesn't have the courage to do it. He lacks the will needed. He lacks the tough-mindedness to do the right thing. As I read these verses in my study, I found myself talking to myself. Anybody ever talk to themselves? If you didn't raise your hand, you do talk to yourself. You were just doing it right there. You're like, should I raise my hand? Are people going to think I'm weird? If you raise your hand, people are going to think you're weird. Don't raise your hand. My wife tells me, Dave, you're allowed to talk to yourself as long as you don't answer yourself. It's when you answer yourself, we got problems. As I read this, I found myself asking, would I do the right thing even if it weren't convenient? Would I have the courage to do the right thing? The tough-mindedness to do what is necessary. John lives tough-minded. John lives for the glory of God. If we're going to thrive and survive in this world, we must commit to those two things. But there's one more. Last one. We must third. First, live for the glory of God. Second, live tough-minded. Third, live word-saturated. John is a man who lives for the Word of God. John's boldness, John's integrity, John's courage, John's tough-mindedness does not come on a part of his personality alone. It comes on, a, on, on account of his confidence in the Word of God. Herod is confident he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, and nobody's going to tell him otherwise. John is confident in the Word of God. He's drinking in the Word of God. He's hiding God's Word in his heart. He's meditating on God's Word. He's living out God's Word. He's pursuing God's Word. He's loving God's Word. He's allowing the Word of God to be a lamp to his feet, a light to his path, directing his steps, leading and guiding him all along the way. It's the word of God that gives John boldness. Let me, let me, let me show you by, by way of example of his life. In Matthew, Matthew's account of the same event, the Bible teaches us that between the imprisonment and the beheading, John has this season of doubt where he's wondering if in fact he got it wrong. Is Jesus not the Messiah? Is he not the lamb? Is he not the groom? Is, is he not the light? And so John calls two of his disciples to him, and he says to two of his followers, go ask Jesus if he is the one that we were looking for or no. So the two disciples, they go and they get Jesus and they say, listen, John's in prison and he's not in in a good way of it. And, And he's wanting to know if he got it wrong or are you the Messiah? Seems like a pretty straightforward question. Yes or no. Are you the Messiah? Yes. Or are you not the Messiah? No. But how many of you know Jesus never answers the question yes or no, right? So Jesus says to the disciples, tell John what you see. The deaf hear. The blind see. The lame walk. But that's a weird answer. It was yes or no. Tell John what you see. The deaf hear. The lame walk. The blind see. The followers, Matthew, say, go back to John in prison. They say, John, we asked him the question. You told us to ask him. He gave us the weirdest answer. John says, what did he say? He said something like, the deaf hear the blind see, the lame walk. John says, that's that's good enough for me. And here's why it's good enough for John. That's an exact quotation of what the prophet Isaiah said the Messiah would do. So do you see what Jesus is doing? Jesus is taking John in his moment of doubt and in his moment of discouragement and in his moment of despair and he's dragging John right back to the word of God and he's saying, this is the word of God, John. Stand on God's word, not on the situation you find yourself in, not on uh, the exercise of self-glorification, not on your own predicament, not on your own feelings. John, stand on the word of God. And that one answer from Jesus is enough for John to kick his feet up, lay back on his prison bed, and wait for Herod to come in and take his head. There's never going to be a strong biblical commitment in your life or in mine apart from the scriptures. We must commit ourselves to be word. Saturated. You say, Dave, what does it mean to be word-saturated? It means this, that you read the Bible, that you know the Bible, that you hide the Bible in your heart. You spend time in the Bible in the morning and you spend time in the Bible in the evening and you have post-it notes of Bible verses. You You have notifications on your phone of Bible verses that you're regularly reading the Bible, that you're reading the Bible in the books that you're reading, that you have the Bible in your speech, that you talk of the Bible at the dinner table, that you pray the Bible in the evening, that you're taking in God's word and you're living Word-saturated. If you're going to survive and thrive, if if you're going to have a plan, if you will do the right thing no matter what, the Word of God is not incidental to your goal. The Word of God is essential to your goal. So how much time do you spend in the Bible? How much of the Bible are you hiding in your heart? How much of this book are you letting shape your decisions, shape your affections, shape your entertainment, shape the way you choose to see life, shape the way you choose to engage with others in life? How much of this book are you allowing to take you and lead you and shape you and form you and make you into the man or the woman that God intends you to be? You have a pastor who preaches God's word. You ought to thank God for that. You ought to be thankful that you have a pastor who stands on God's word. Not many churches have a pastor like yours who loves God's word, who preaches God's word, who stands on God's word. That's a gift to a church. But it can't just be the pastor getting into the word of God for you. If all you're eating is one meal a week, you're starving. You have to get into God's word yourself. I challenge our church at Long Beach, many of us can make at least this decision, I'm going to spend five minutes every day in God's Word. Now, there's some in the room, you could clearly do much more than that, and you should do much more than that, but for the rest of us, we can at least begin there. I'm going to spend five minutes in God's Word every day. If you say, well, I'm not even for sure where to start, let me tell you, don't start in Leviticus. I don't know where you should start, but don't start there. You won't make it very long. How about the book of, how about the book, I was going to say Numbers. How about the book of Psalms? Psalms is a beautiful book. David conveys all kinds of emotions, all kinds of feelings in that, in that book. It's a song. They're prayers by way of song. It's beautiful. How about the Gospels, the story of Jesus. If you're more of a death and destruction guy, how about the book of Revelation? You have to start somewhere. The contrast is seen in this. We're done here. The contrast is seen in that John stands on God's word. Herod, he just likes to hear God's word. You caught that in the text, didn't you? Look, look at it, just, just real quick. Just, look up, just put your eyes on it, just real quick. Watch this. Verse 20, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and holy. He observed him. Look at, look at the verse, verse 20. He heard him, he did many things, and he heard him gladly. Do you see that? What does that mean? That means, that means Herod went to church and heard John preach. And when he heard John preach, he went, "Whoo! That, that's pretty neat. I kind of like this guy. He heard him gladly, but he did nothing with what he heard. That's what the Apostle James is aiming at when James writes his letter and says, don't be a hearer of the word only. Deceiving yourself, thinking that just because you heard the word, that the word's in you. No, no, no. Be a doer of the word also. See, it's not enough to come to church, sit, listen to the sermon, stand up and walk out of the back. No, no, we have to come to church, listen to God's word, take God's word, ask the spirit of God to use the word of God to shape us into the children of God that he wants us to be in this world. Herod heard the best preacher of his time. And he heard him gladly. There was no prophet Like John, he's the greatest prophet born of a woman, Jesus said. Herod heard the best preacher of his time. He heard him regularly, he heard him gladly, and he did nothing with what he heard. What a warning for you and me. Are we taking the truths that we hear from God's word, and are we working them down into our hearts, into our lives, and allowing them to shape us? Lead us and guide us in the way that we ought to go. Will you tonight commit to do the right thing no matter what? Live for the glory of God, live tough minded, and live word saturated. I want to be a husband of the Word of God. I want to be a dad of the Word of God. I want to be a pastor of God's Word. I want to be a friend who has God's Word, can use it to help those that God has put in my life. And I believe that that's what you want as well. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.